PowerPoint thing, and I feel like I need to use it, right? Um, and so anyway, as you know, I'm Brian Vickers. I teach at Southern. I'm starting, it's, I'm starting, I guess I'm in my 19th year at Southern. Um, so that's, you know, really grateful to be there. It's a great place to work. This is, I think, my fourth, third time at this conference. Um, and so today, obviously, we're going to talk about, um, I think Jeff entitled it, right, Dramatical re- Dramatic Reversals. We have a little bit of a vague title, uh, but also Biblical Theology is in that title. And so one of the things we're going to talk about probably in the second session is some of the kind of ups and downs of biblical theology in ministry, especially in preaching. Um, it would be, I, I don't want to say, I wouldn't call it at all a love-hate relationship. It is sort of a love, let's not talk about it relationship I have with biblical theology in preaching. Um, but not because, but again, I love it, but sometimes think, let's just not talk about it. Um, I'll just give you a couple of stories. Uh, one time I had a student who got really in- interested in biblical theology. Now, the kind of biblical theology he got interested in was really just something we call biblical theology, and it kind of is, but it was really just sort of big picture of the Bible, right? Which is what most people think of when they think of biblical theology, and that's fine. That is a sort of biblical theology. It's not all. But he got really into, like, he had read According to Plan. He was taking one of my hermeneutics classes. He got really excited, which is great, because I don't teach it because I think it's not good, right? Um, and so he took, this, he took this course. I mean, he never thought about, this is really common. He hadn't thought about how the whole Bible hangs together yet. He was really excited. And then we kept in touch, and a, few year, a couple of years later, he was also a pastor. And he said, you know, I've run into a problem. And... <laughs> What's that? Okay. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man in front of the curtain. I feel like this isn't connected. I'm, not, I'm no expert. <laughs> but I feel like there needs to be something here. <laughs> I'm not going to touch it. Yeah. All right. So, back to my not very exciting story. He said, I've run into a problem. He said, I started off, I'm preaching, I'm, and he was preaching in, in the Old Testament, and he said, after about eight weeks, I felt like I was kind of ending every sermon in the same sort of general way with it sort of generally pointing towards Jesus. He said, which in the first few weeks, everybody's super excited about. He said, but now I've kind of like lost the thread of it a little bit. I'm trying to figure out how to make this work in preaching. He said, because I kind of feel like I never really touch the ground. I'm always sort of hovering above the ground. And of course, that's the danger, right? Everything that's good also has a danger, right? Now, I have some friends, and I mean, I don't know any of you. I just, it might be, there might be somebody like this in the room. I have some friends who, anytime I start to say anything barely negative about biblical theology, they go completely bananas. Uh, because they think immediately, that must mean I don't like it, okay? But I do. But here's the thing. We want to avoid something, and this can be avoided. This is not really a problem in biblical theology. It's a problem in the sort of application of it. We want to avoid, let's say we put the Bible together. Let's just use people, right? A very basic way of doing it, right? Let's say you start with Adam. It seems like a good place to start. 
And then sometimes we put Noah in there if we think about it, uh, but at least Abraham is next. And then Moses, or Israel, right? And then Jesus, and then sort of the church, right? And however you want to do it, right? That's not very technical. And that's fine. That's great. It works. Uh, you, you could substitute covenants, right? If you want that sort of covenants right there. Well, no, no, I said sort of. Sort of. I said sort of. So if anybody's like super hyper about that, I did say sort of, right? And that's fine. But one of the things we want to be careful, though, is when we only operate from this sort of structure without knowing it, it's, that can sort of subtly become our Bible, so when we refer to things, we're actually referring to a reconstructed version. It might be great. We're kind, of, we're kind of always referring to a reconstructed version of the Bible, not the text itself. And that can happen pretty easily. Um, doesn't have to happen. No. Hey, you guys are all stars. Sort, sort of all-stars. <laughs> I think I can fix this one. Is, oh, I thought I'd... Had, sorry. I think so. There. I'm going to assume it's back there right now. Oh, it's back. I know what most of you are thinking right now, by the way. I'd be thinking it too. Oh, okay, because I thought it disappeared there for a second. All right. Now I really know what you're thinking because obviously it's user error. Okay, I'm not going to look. I'm going to take Dan, Dan's... Uh, Yelp is good news. So that's one thing that can happen. I wasn't going to talk about this till the end, by the way, but now I've already started. Here's the more serious danger. Now, again, danger doesn't mean it has to happen. And that is when we only operate from, say, a big picture kind of uh, perspective, we lose, potentially can lose, one of the main purposes and goals of Scripture, and that is to confront and form and change the reader by being confronted by the text itself. Not by the sort of big, huge picture of the text itself, but the text itself. But again, this doesn't have to happen. There's no, like, it's not, it's not like there's some sort of built-in flaw in a biblical theological approach to the Bible. There isn't. It's just it can sort of happen because we can lose we can lose sort of the vision of uh, what, I mean, not, he didn't make this up, but one, one of the things that a theologian named John Webster really emphasizes is we have, to re, we have to regain and reclaim holy scripture in that holy is not just the title, like you could substitute the word the for it. And that is holy means the Bible is both sanctified and sanctifying by its very nature. Right? And so, we can't, we can't lose that aspect of the Bible and sort of swap it for what I like to call the highly interesting. Right? Because 
lots of connections can be really interesting and fascinating, right? Um, if you read much in sort of typology or something, you have run across this, right? And that is, things can be sort of ultra-interesting, ultra-fascinating, ultra-challenging, and really make you think and, you, and, and about how things... And then, and, then, and, you know, and then you develop, you develop this sort of new appreciation for Scripture in how it hangs together and the complexities of it, right? Sort of the simplicity, but then the complexities of it. But at the end of the day, the Bible is not just a complex web of connections for us to put together and be fascinated by and sort of stand back and look at and then sort of just present to one another, all right? Um, I have a particularly good friend. Um, is this being recorded? Oh, he'll never hear it. I have a particularly good friend uh, named Jim Hamilton. Some of you have heard of James, James M. Hamilton, right? And so Jim is always nervy because of the things I tend to say about typology, Right? But of course, Jim, he thinks if you just say typology and don't immediately say something great, you hate it. But that's not the case. Right? But I've seen it with my students, especially in the past 10, 15 years, which is most of my career, where making connections becomes like, that's, that sort of starts to replace everything. It starts to replace sort of exegesis. And honestly, on a simplified level, it's much easier just to make big connections than to actually do exegesis of the text. It really is. <laughs> and so, or it can be. No, it is. It always is. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. If it gets back to Jim, that's fine. I'll defend it. But again, the thing is, though, is we can lose actually hearing the Scripture, the text of a Scripture, the text of Scripture, the text of a Scripture, we can lose he- hearing it as something speaking to us, God himself speaking to us and engaging us and exposing our hearts, not just giving us new information, not just telling us new things, even about himself, God himself, and his work in the world. But we can miss the fact that what the scriptures does, what scriptures do, what they must do is constantly open us up and expose us, not just point us, not said not just, but expose us, <clears throat> and so that we are not just engaging the Bible, but I would even say first and foremost, the Bible is engaging us. A really, one, of my, one of the most important um, mentors of my life, a man named Mike Se- Mark Seifried, he used to say always, if you want to exegete the Bible, you cannot do so unless the Bible first exegetes you. Right? Unless, in, unless it is like a mirror, right? That is, you look into it and you don't walk away as though you forgot what you looked like. Right? So that's kind of my intro, things that will, again, we can come back and talk about those things. But what we're going to do today is we're just going to follow. <laughs> we're going to follow a very simple sort of, it's not sort of typological, there'll be a little bit of it in there. We're going to look at a simple theme though, that recurs throughout the Bible. And sometimes I just say, in the Bible, contrary to the way we sometimes talk about the Bible, there is never an, of course that happened. Well, of course. Right, we'll get to this later uh, in not too long. 
But one of the ways I often to say is like, yeah, you know what's not, of course, that a boy kills a giant. That's not, of course. Right? It just isn't. Now, on one level, we like, well, of course it is, because it's David. Like, nah. If you'd been there in the moment and the time, you might not have thought, here's the kid to save the day. But I'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But this is a really, uh, it's a really easy theme to follow in the Bible, but it's prevalent from old all the way to the New Testament. And so we'll just start. We're not going to start with this. I'm going to skip that, come back to it. This is by a less, lesser-known person who's from West Virginia, my favorite place on earth, but I, I don't know. So this guy, um, what biblical theology is and what it does. <laughs> so biblical theology is the study and interpretation of God's revelation of himself in Holy Scripture in its entirety as the mighty works of God, right? Preaching and, te- preaching and proclaiming the mighty works of God from Acts. <laughs> the creator in, for, and through Jesus Christ for proclamation and the formation of disciples and ultimately the exaltation of God in Christ. I can read it right here. Biblical, the- biblical theology may be, this is the thing that sort of uh, frustrates people. Biblical theology may be pursued on the basis of genre, like there's different kinds of writing in the scripture. You guys know what that is. Themes, it can be done book by book, it can be done with a center, it may follow historical lines of salvation, history, and covenants, person, and or events. In other words, biblical theology is not just one thing. It's not, it's not just sort of one definition, right? Uh, it can be, all those are legitimate things. So if you would read Donald Guthrie's, this is pretty old now, Donald Guthrie's New Testament theology, it goes book by book by book by book. That is New Testament theology. If you read Tom Schreiner's uh, Magnifying God in Christ, it, that's biblical theology. If you read Jim, Jim Hamilton's Salvation Through Judgment, which is not book by book by book by book, that is also biblical theology. And so it, there's different ways to approach it. it, can, it the way, in, other words, in other words, the way it's constructed can vary. And it's not one, one way is not more legitimate than another. Biblical theology is descriptive. That's usually the knock against it, by the way, by my systematic friends. Like, you know, biblical theology is only descriptive. I'm like, well, it's only because you don't really know what it is. Otherwise, you wouldn't say that. But it must not stop at description. Biblical theology must be aligned with the goal of Scripture itself, namely the formation of God's people in Christ. The Scripture binds, condemns, and it frees. It is law and it is gospel. Biblical theology should follow the sanctified nature and sanctifying purpose of Holy Scripture. Anyway, that's very wordy. Description, but the thing about a really long definition like that is by the time you're done, like nobody can completely disagree with it. It's the short definitions that give you problems, but if you just keep talking, people will be like, yeah, that's, that seems right to me. All right, so that's just, a, you know, things you learn after talking for a living. All right, anyway, I don't, you don't have to memorize this. The only thing that I'll say that makes this stand out, and there's, so like Jim Hamilton, he's got a really great definition of biblical theology about thinking the author's thoughts after him. In his little book called What is Biblical Theology, it's a book I highly recommend. I'm not trying to one-up Jim or anybody, but the one thing, one thing I'm trying to do here is you can see it, and that is to kind of hardwire this idea of what Scripture is and what it does to a definition of biblical theology to so maybe right off the bat we don't start off with this potential to kind of float above it. You know, because it's a weird thing that we can do. Now, we all know, we all know that in 19th and 20th century, 20th century liberalism, the text, the history, the text, and history of the text, and the interpretation of the text, they were separated. 
right? So you have, you have like salvation, you have to say, here's the Bible, right? That's not very, you have the Bible, and then above it, right? Above the history of it, above the historicity of it, above the, even the text of it was sort of the theology of it. And, you know, it's a very modernistic way of reading the Bible, but sometimes with completely different presuppositions, so it's not exactly the same thing, we can do the same sort of thing. Right? Now, but, I mean, of course, affirming the historicity of the text, affirm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go through all the things we affirm. So I'm not saying it's the exact same thing, but we want to be careful that we, of all people, don't sort of float above the text and only exist in what has to be a reconstructed version of it. There's nothing wrong right? Because you, when you teach the Bible, you teach biblical theology, you teach anything, you, you, you can't just read the, whole, read the thing and just repeat it back, right? The minute you start talking about it, you're sort of reconstructing something, right? That's what interpretation is, right? Interpretation is not just your understanding, it's your expression of it, it's your communi- communication of it. So we have to do this by nature, but the thing is, is we can't let that become sort of our reference point, right? So anyway, I think I probably beat that one to death. So let's talk about this idea of reversal, now, let, let's say what it isn't. It is not, I'm not talking about God reverses his course or changes his mind, ever. That's never what the word reversal means here today. It never means God started to do something. He's like, whoops, hold on. Let's reel this one back and try again. It never means that. It is the reversal of the sort of human arc of the story in the Bible. This isn't always a great thing to do. I guess one of the ways to capture this is to think, imagine just for a second, just for a second, this is not a great hermeneutic, by the way, but just for a moment, imagine you had never read the Bible before and you started reading it from the beginning, right? Which is what you would do, right? That seems a bizarre concept sometimes, but if we had a Bible, we didn't know we'd start at the beginning and we'd read all the way to the end. I think what you would find I think what we would find is there would be time after time after time we think, well, this story's done. Right? But it, it's not. But as somebody who has never read it before, and if you know, you weren't sort of coming into it skeptically, I mean, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, you're like, well, I know what happens now. They die. What's the road? I don't understand what the, what I don't understand is why there's so many pages after this. Right? And then they live. And you know, I'm not going to recount everything, but then you get to Cain and Abel, you think, wow, this is not getting better. And then you have a couple of highlights that are sort of strange, like with Enoch. And you get to Noah, and you think, well, well, before you get to Noah, it's like, you know, the heart and thought of the men were only evil all the time. And you're still thinking, what could all the rest of these pages be about? Because this story is not working. And then you get to Noah, and you're like, okay, we fixed it. You're like, no, we haven't. And it's kind of that over and over and over again. And I think this is one of the big ones. It's a reversal of what we would expect to happen in any other single context that we could ever encounter or be in. Like on a day-to-day basis, right? Uh, it's just, it's, I'm not saying it's only this. I'm not saying that this is all that happens. But sometimes I think because of familiarity with the Bible, we sometimes lose and sort of, we, I think we, sometimes we lose sort of the wonder and awe 
of how unexpected virtually everything that happens in the Bible really is. And this is what I mean by in the Bible there is no of course. Or what would normally happen, that's a very similar thing. It's not, it's the reversal of the script we would write. I'll talk about that more later. Say, that's fancy. Do that one more time. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, my daughter will watch me do that. And she's like, you know, you spend all this time doing that and nobody thinks it's really that exciting. And so, but she, but then she'll, don't take this wrong, but she'll say, but probably the crowds that you speak to do think it's kind of (laughs) cool. So, (laughs) she's a great kid, believe me, right? Our expectations, if we're honest. Now, here's the challenges, right? Uh, I'm going to go through these pretty quick. Some of the challenges that face us when we're reading the Bible and teaching, especially when we're teaching and preaching the Bible, is we can lose the wonder and awe of the story of the Scripture, especially if we only exist in this sort of like pristine, uh, big picture kind of idea, if we only exist there. And any number of reasons, too. Any number of other reasons, too. Uh, domesticating the stories, this can be a big deal, right? So we'll, we'll, take, a, we'll take a look at David, and even David and Goliath. Like, as soon as I say David and Goliath, in a lot of circles are like, David and Goliath, come on. I think we know that one. This sort of practical, of course, attitude view of the Bible. Talked about that before. Uh, we love heroes in our own image, and we'll sometimes recreate the heroes of the Bible. Uh, not according to the story that they're in, but sort of according to how we've kind of taken them and what we've turned them into. This, this certainly happened to me as a kid in Sunday school. I'm really, really grateful for how I grew up. I mean, I rejected all of it till I was, you know, in college. But I kind of did grow up with like, you know, dare to be a Daniel, dare to be a David, all these kind of things. It was like on flannel graph. Like, there's a few people who know what I mean by flannel graph. But um, well, my brother and sister had flannel graph. And, so, <laughs> and again, like I said, the love of the interesting. I love interesting things, but the Bible has to be more than interesting, more than fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating, interesting things in the world. Uh, and I've already talked about this. The, I like the Bible Project. It's fine. But books and the Bible Project can't replace the Bible. And that's not a knock. <laughs> The Bible Project's fine, um, but it, that's not, it's not the Bible, as helpful as it may be, right, as whatever positive things. Or, you know, Graham Goldsworthy's According to Plan. That's not the Bible. It's a great book, but it's not the Bible. I'm not going to name all the books that are written that are not the Bible, but, you, you know, you get the point. All right, so the first reversal, it's right, it's right from the beginning, Genesis 2.16, now I don't mean it's a reversal of grace and patience, but what you hear, what we see is grace and patience right off the bat, right? Because this is the first, I mean, I know in a general, in a general sort of way, in terms of general grace, it's God was gracious in creating the world, but the first time you see grace in the Bible, it's not stated, is right here. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of everything in the garden, Genesis 3.20, um, so, so, you know, God tells them not to eat, then God gives them everything that they need, right? And you know the rest, right? Actually, I, I didn't copy and paste that good enough. Um, you know what happens after 2.16, right? They eat, 
but they don't die. Now, somebody's like, but they die spiritually. Like, okay, but they don't die. When the first time God said, he didn't really stipulate on the day you will, you'll die. Now, of course, I mean you'll die spiritually. Now, of course, but they do die, right? But life will continue. And this is what we see in Genesis 3.20, right? The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. In other words, it's going to hurt, but you're going to live. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothed them and takes care of them. Right now, a little note at the bottom, Romans 3. There, it turns out that the curse was not reversed, right? The curse was never reversed. The whole full brunt force, brute force of the curse fell on Jesus. So it's not as though God sort of turned his back on the curse, right? I, I don't mean that. But again, I mean in the sort of arc of the story, you're, not, you're only three chapters in, and it's already things are happening that, again, if you hadn't sort of read it, you, this would not be what you would expect. And it's not as though the sort of the trajectory of the human race gets better after this, as you know. Now we're going to really fast forward. We think of Abraham and the story of Abraham, we immediately think of chapter 12, which is great, but the story of Abraham actually starts in chapter 11 that sets up sort of not just the story of Abraham, but in some ways the rest of the story of the Bible from that point. And that is, in chapter 11, what you hear, what do genealogies do? You don't have to answer, you know what they do. And even if you didn't, by the time you got to Genesis 11, you'd be like, okay, I know what these lists do. And then you come to one list of some guy, right? Now, of, of course, you know through genealogies where he comes from, but there's nothing particular about this guy. He doesn't distinguish himself ahead of time, right? He just, he doesn't. He just, he's there. Except he is distinguishable in this way. He's the one person in these genealogies who has no future. Compare the genealogy of a Abram to the rest of the genealogies. And his stands out like this, it's finished. It stops dead. There is no going forward with this one. Right? He's, I mean, honestly, it's, he's dead in the water. And then we later find out, right, not only is his wife barren, like, I mean, he's reached his sell-by date. And so there's not a lot going to happen here, but this is what you hear about him in chapter 11, and all we have to do to see this, right, is just back up, probably not even turn the page. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. You turn right to chapter 12, and what happens? God appears to Abraham and promises him what? A great nation. And, you know, what do you need to be a great nation? Well, there's one sort of, it seems like to me there's one key element without which you can never be a great nation. You're going to need people. The one thing Abraham and Sarai cannot have. And, that's, and so, you see, when the, when the story of Abraham starts, I've got a Bible here. I'm not going to read all these things to you. When the story of Abraham and Sarai starts, though, this is how it starts. With hopelessness. It's just bleak hopelessness. And this is the very guy who on just the next, again, I bet I, bet I don't even have to turn the, turn the page. Maybe there isn't a Genesis 12 in this particular ESV Bible. No, there it is. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in all and in you all the families or peoples of the earth will be blessed. And that's the guy with no future of all the people. Right? And there's another one. I'm not going to stop on this one, but you know in Genesis 15 we get a reversal of what we would think normally would make somebody right or make somebody good or make somebody sort of uh, identified as good or right. Because normally, right, and this would certainly be true of the, of, the, of the Israelite readers of this story, I mean, in your daily life, what makes you think somebody is a good guy? What do you base that? I mean, certainly you all know somebody who you would say is a good guy, right? I mean, hopefully you do. Maybe the person, hopefully the person sitting beside you. What makes you think that? It's what they're like. It's the things they do, right? It's their track record. It's what you can expect. It's what the, now, what, but what do we find out in Genesis 15? What makes somebody right in the eyes of God is faith. Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. The status, that, the status that an Israelite would have on the basis of what? Faithfulness to the law keeper through keeping the law. The law sorry, faithfulness to the law giver by keeping the law. Right? Because don't ever forget, keeping the law is faithfulness to God. It's not just doing laws. But what do they hear? No, it's on the basis of faith that God looks at Abraham and declares him to be righteous by faith. And that's sort of a massive reversal, right? And it's still true today. But anyway, that was a free one. It's not in the slides. Now, this one, I can just, I'll be just really, really clear. This one I'm taking from a guy called Stephen Dempster, which, here's a little free thing. If you want a book that's going to really help you understand the Old Testament, like in, in new ways, get Stephen Dempster's book, Dominion and Dynasty. That, that, is, a, that is a great book. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I, there you go. Take it for what it's worth. Hmm? Stephen Dempster, D-E-M-P-S-T-E-R, Dempster, yeah. yeah. So anyway. I, I, I borrowed this from him. Everybody's familiar with the Joseph story, right? Now, right in the middle of a Joseph story, I know I've fast-forwarded a lot, but I mean, we can't stop at every single thing. But this was a really pretty remarkable one, and one we don't pay a lot of attention to. Everybody knows the Joseph story, right? I mean, even people who have never read the Bible know the Joseph story because of an unfortunate sort of Broadway musical. I guess it's not unfortunate. I shouldn't say unfortunate. What's unfortunate is one time my wife and I were forced to sit through a one-child rendition of the whole thing by super proud parents, and that probably forever changed the way I think of Joseph and the Amazing Color. What is it called? That thing. I'm probably, that probably tainted my experience of that as I literally had to sit and watch a kid do a one-kid rendition of the whole thing. And so that, yeah, trapped in a living room. So... You know, take it with a grain of salt. 
We know the Joseph story, but you know, right in the middle of Joseph's story is this, it's one of the strangest stories in the Bible. You have one of Jacob's sons. He's not even the first son. He's the third son. Now, he doesn't, he sort of distinguishes himself as being one of the worst of a whole batch of bad sons. And, he, and, it, and it comes out in chapter, it comes out in chapter 38. Judah, right? So he's the third son. It does, this doesn't matter yet. We'll see in a minute. It turns out to be like a big deal. First, you're like, well, whatever, right? So number one, it interrupts the Joseph stories. So if you're reading along the Joseph story, all of a sudden you have this really, just think about it. Next time you read the Joseph story, stop and think about what a slam of the brakes this is. And all of a sudden you're reading the story about this guy Judah, one of his brothers. And then the Joseph story picks up again. He lives among Canaanites already, sort of strike. This is not even strike one, right? He's already got strikes against him. We won't try to count them. He marries a Canaanite woman, and he has this daughter-in-law, Tamar. She wants a child, but the men around her are useless for various reasons. And then Tamar, the wife of Judah's son, she dresses like a prostitute, so she doesn't really sort of rise to the top as being like a moral example either. But, you know, this is not like, I'm not excusing it. Why does Tamar want a son so badly, and why does she need a son? Because she needs to survive. That's simple. Again, this doesn't make it like, well, I guess and, you, know, you can always, prostitution is an, is an option. That, that's, of course, that's not what it is. But this is why having a son is so important to her. She has no other way of supporting herself. Like, that's it. She's just, she needs a family. It's not unreasonable, right? Again, the way she pursued it. And she seduces Judah. Now, Judah... I may be in a hurry to leave, leaves a couple of things behind that he's going to regret. He leaves his staff and he leaves his seal. And then not long, ago, not long later, <laughs> Tamar starts to show. And who goes completely, morally, com- just unhinged? Judah. Condemns her to death. Until she says, oh, hey, Pops, I have something you might want to see. And it's his staff and it's his seal. And he immediately changes his tune. And there's two sons born, Perez and Zerah, two sons of a Canaanite woman. Now, those two sons are going to show up again in a pretty significant genealogy later on in the Bible. But we're not done with Judah yet. Let's take a look at Judah. Let's take a look at chapter 49. Verse 8. So here's Jacob is on his deathbed, and he's blessing his sons. And he gets to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is like a lion's club. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter. When was the last time you heard about the staff, Judah's, Judah's staff? It was evidence against him, right? It was moral evidence against him which revealed his sinfulness and his duplicity, his viciousness, everything. And now, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, that seems like a weird picture, like, okay. Now, if you, though, if you live in the ancient Near East and you have enough vines that you can use vines, like grapevines, to tie up your animals, you've got a lot of crops. Because you can use something that is, you can use something that is for sustenance and you have so much of it that you can use it for a common, everyday thing, like to tie up your donkey. You've got a lot. Same thing with the next one. He washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. Now, it's not because ancient Near Eastern people didn't realize that uh, wine would uh, cause fabrics to turn purple. But here again, if you have so much wine, that you could wash your clothes in it. You have more wine than you... In fact, you have more wine than anybody's ever had. This is a picture of unimaginable, unimaginable blessing that goes beyond anything that we could imagine. And it's going to be whose? Judah's. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. And then it just moves on to the rest of the brothers. But you see, now again, this is not, like, this is not really even deeply insightful. It's just from reading the story along. But if we only would sort of reconstruct the big picture of the Bible, there's a really good chance that if we included Judah at all, it would just be because he's part of the genealogy. And like a forgettable part too, right? He's just one of the kids. But, you know, there's David. And then, of course, Jesus. But we might not see that down in the story, in the text of the Scripture, you do have this huge reversal of this guy who is, there is really nothing outstanding about him at all. He's the opposite. And he ends up having, right, Canaanite children through whom the promise to the barren, hopeless couple, you know, from centuries before, through whom all the nations on the earth are going to be blessed. Right? It's not, again, Judah's not a hopeful figure, but hope's going to come through him. Right? And so anyway, he describes a warrior king, 
right? I've already said all those things. I kind of stole my thunder from all these things, but that's okay. Now, we're going to fast forward again to a whole book. Of all the books of the Old Testament, the one I remember from being a kid the most is Judges. And there's really only one person I remember from Judges, and that is, of course, one of the worst people in Judges, but also like the toughest guy on earth that nobody ever forgets, and that is, right, Samson, right? So when I grew up hearing about Samson, right, Samson was this guy who, uh, you know, he lied. That's bad, you know, and this Philistine woman who tricked him, his own fault for being who he was. But you know what he did with a jawbone? Like, yeah, that is awesome. I mean, now, I don't want to take anything away from that. That is awesome. What he's able to do with that jawbone, I mean, I'm not, bra- not this, I don't even know who would think this is a brag. I literally have a cow's jawbone. I have no idea how I got it. My wife bought it at a farmer's market, and I like to throw it to my dogs because they, it makes them insane. But sometimes I hold that thing and think, I'm not sure what damage I could do to anybody with this for any length of time. But you know, we'll get to Samson in a second. Did you ever ask yourself, how does he make it into Hebrews 11? I'm not saying there's no way, that I'm not saying there's no reason for that. But you know, he just sort of shows up there. And we sort of take it for granted. That's my point here, is we sort of take it for granted. And sometimes in the retelling of the story of Samson, we kind of gloss over, this is not a good guy. He really isn't. And even at the end, he's still pretty questionable. But the whole book of Judges is a whole book of reversals, right? So, you know, if you have to set the scene... You set the scene in Joshua 1.16. Now, again, I'm going to try not to sound like a broken record, uh, but if we are only sort of hopping along, we might miss that really against the backdrop of judges is not just this. It's Joshua 1.16. And it's not just this. This is just one example. Because in Joshua 1.16, the people answered Joshua, all that you've commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go, just as we obeyed Moses and all the things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And then they go on to make this pledge. So here you have this national pledge, Right? And I'm not, I'm not saying that like, nobody there was sincere or that they're all liars or anything like that. I mean, they do say, just as we always obeyed Moses. I'm like, okay, well, a little bit of a cloudy memory here, it seems like. But, you know, it's everybody talking at once, so I give them the benefit of the doubt. They make this huge pledge, right? And then at the beginning of Judges, there's something similar. So in, in, in 2, 6 and following, this is where, this is where Joshua dies. Right? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Joshua dies in 2, 6. Um, and they, they bury him. And then you get this refrain. That, that The first time you hear the refrain is in 2, 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And then it gets worse from there. 
right? So the, virtually the minute, it's, of course it's not, right when Joseph dies, they immediately revert to what they were up to when Moses was up on the mountain, right? Because don't ever forget, they're not having a barbecue down there with that golden calf. Like they've gone full-on pagan. There's no like ancient Near Eastern block party for barbecues. You do that when you're going full-on pagan and taking part in all the pagan things you do when you're hoping to, you know, hoping to have crops and whatever else. So that's how long it lasts. And the whole book of Judges is a whole book that reminds us, that should remind us of, that we should never say, well, of course. Of course they, of course Samson or, of course, Ehud. And we'll look at some figures here in a second. And then you know the, you know the refrain, there's no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's repeated uh, twice explicitly. 19.1 is it's almost all there. But that's the whole scene. And it sets up this scene to where you get to the end of Judges, there can be only one conceivable reason that these people have survived. Only one. Because in spite of the heroes there. Now, sometimes this is the thing. If we go to the heroes in Judges, and we just see them as like, wow, thanks to these people, but they are the most unlikely cast of characters that anybody's ever assembled in one place. The Judges, for the most part. So you have Ahud, chapter 3, 1 to 30. He's left-handed. And you do, the people do cry out to God. Now, the left-handed thing, people talk about different reasons. Now, the thing is, occasionally what I'll hear somebody is like, this is, this is why, right, he was able to draw his sword in an, like an unexpected way. So, in, like, he would have been, like, they would have been looking for it to come, wait, what, I'm right-handed, okay, <laughs> I had to think about it. They would have expected this, but what they got was that. I'm like, well, maybe. And I get that, you know, you've read some, like, military book or something, and that's fine. It's possible. But, typically speaking, the left hand is not the sort of hand of respect. And I'm, again, I'm not just trying to make it all about background, but it does, for whatever reason, point out that he's left-handed, which is not something that's pointed out like what handed people are in the Bible is not a typical thing. Like, you know, Jesus called John, um, James and John, both of whom were right-handed. Right? It, it just pointed out, like, and we just ask why, but there's something about it, right? There's something unusual about this guy. But it's pretty successful. Then you have Shamgar, the second sort of baddest guy in Judges, right? Now, you might, we read this story of Shamgar, and we think, man, that guy is something. And he was. Don't get me wrong. But come on. 600 people with a stick. You really expect that? Right? 600 people come storming up here, and like, the biggest guy from this, the toughest guy from this room goes out with a stick, or the rest of us is like, oh, this is, this is fine. It's going to be fine. Because one guy with a stick always wins. As long as he's super tough. Like, see, see what I mean? But we read that. And I'm not saying this is how you read it. But we sort of read that, well, of course. Because guys like Shamgar, right, and Judges, of course, man. God was on his side. Like, yeah, I get that. But it's not really, and that's true, and I'm not downing that for a second, but see, that's the thing. The only thing that explains 600 Philistines who are not known to be sort of like pushovers, killed with an ox goat, there's only one explanation for that. 
And it can't just come down to, you know, Shamgar's physical and military prowess with a stick. There's only one thing that could explain it. Deborah. Just the, just, just Deborah being there. Now, what's, what's remarkable about that? Something you can answer out loud. I'm making this sort of like a lecture. I'm going to pull back and make it more like we're talking. What's remarkable about that? Mm. She's a woman. She's judging Israel. Again, we're, you know, it's not what you would expect. There's already something unusual in the story. Now, in the middle of that story, there is one of the most unusual stories in the whole Bible. That at every level is not, of course, this happened. And it happens with like my favorite character of Judges, J.L. Now, Sisera, right? I'm, you know, I'm just assuming that like a lot of ancient kings, they sang songs about Sisera. Right? And when he died, they would have written a song. I'm thinking that when, this, when Sisera died, the people are like, we've got to think carefully about how we're going to sing this song. Because you know one thing that, I, okay, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't there, and I'm not an ancient Near Eastern historical expert, but you know what didn't happen is kings that are overwhelmingly powerful never planned on dying by having their head literally nailed to the floor by a woman with a tent peg and a hammer. That's how he dies. You know how many other ancient, mid, uh, powerful, ancient Mideastern kings died that way? I don't either. I'm assuming, I'm just going to get a limb and say none. Like, I don't even know how many blows of a hammer it takes to get a head, guy's head nailed to the floor, but somehow she does it. But again, as much as I'm talking about J.L., what that story really does is shining the spotlight somewhere else because, please understand, fellas, you have to, uh, I'm just going to trust you to take this the right way. That's, it's a ridiculous story. I don't mean, what I mean is, would you have written it? Now, you might have if you're writing like a sort of ironic story about like weird things that happen. You wouldn't have written it that way. Not if you were writing like a serious story about a mighty king or powerful warrior being killed. You probably wouldn't have. But that's just the thing, see? In this character of Jael, it is like, it's not anything we would ever expect. We can keep going. Whoops. Gideon. Now, I've gone back and forth in my life about what the angel means by hail mighty man of valor. I spent a long time thinking that the angel had my sort of like unfortunate, ironic sense of humor. I was like, hail mighty man of valor down there in the hole. That's possible, but that's also me probably projecting my sense of humor onto the angel. He could have been prophesying. I don't know. But one thing's for sure, when Gideon shows up, he's down in a hole, threshing. I'm not saying that's sinful, right? It's not. But at the same time, it's not really like, you know, rough and ready either. And then, have you ever heard people like, I need to put a fleece out? Now, probably nobody speaks this way anymore, 
But where I grew up, occasionally I would hear like some, uh, some old guy say, we need to put a fleece out on this one. I'm like, which sounds cool. And I'm like, well, yeah, we need to. But on one level, without meaning to, it's sort of like saying, my gut instinct is not to trust God unless I test him first. Right? Because, I mean, but God doesn't, you know, the, the great thing about this story is it's a, huge, it's a nice reminder, right? God doesn't treat us like we're him. You know, God's like, he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke him, but, and I, I'm not saying I would do anything different, but this is sort of how, but anyway, this is how the story of Gideon begins. Begins with him down in a hole, and then God says, this is what's going to happen, and Gideon's like, I'm completely on board, but just to make sure we're clear. You know, and you have the, you have the fleece, I never always get it backwards. Uh, you know, he puts the fleece out to do on it, everything's dry, he's like, you'll believe, that happens, and he's like, okay, I'm pretty sure I've got it. Just, I'm pretty sure. But I mean, just so we're on the same page, let's reverse the thing. Because I really want to be clear on this. I want to make sure I understand you. And it happens. And then Gideon becomes probably the greatest judge in, in Judges. But only after, like this series of events right? I'm not going to go down through the whole thing, but he starts off with 32,000 men. He gets down to 300 through this sort of like kind of strange selection process, right? You have some guys who are like, I want to go home. And then you have this thing about drinking at the stream, which I'd heard this before, but I I visited Israel once. I was actually... um, leading, sort of co-leading a team. And we were at the stream, supposedly the stream, and the guy who was sort of retelling the story was talking about, you know, what it was is that Gideon was checking to see which men would, like, if they drank, if they drank down, that means, like, they weren't ready for battle. And so that's, it was, in other words, they were selected based on their, like, military prowess and knowledge, right? And that is, because if a guy, rather than sort of looking up with a like hand on the sword, but if they, if they got all the way down and drank out of the water, right, they're vulnerable. Like, and he said, you know, like when a giraffe drinks. I'm like, that's a weird thing to say, you know, when a giraffe, like, okay. <laughs> and I thought about that, and everybody was like, hmm. And I thought, well, it's possible. It's possible that's what it is. But what seems to me, to fit the trajectory of the story of Judges is, it is God at work dwindling this army down to 300 to where all of a sudden you have this victory where unless you only look at it in terms of like how awesome those 300 were, if you look at it on any other level, you think there's only one way this battle was won and that's God. Because God reduces the numbers down to the point to where it is impossible for the Israelites to win. Now, again, all things are possible to God. I get it. I 100% support that and believe in it. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying, rather than look at that as like, man, those guys, like, there's not too many armies of 300 that do what they did. Or Jephthah, one thing that's pointed out, he is a mighty warrior, but it does point out he doesn't come from the best stock. It's pointed out as his mother was a prostitute. And again, it's, again, you just ask the question, why does it say this? Like, why include, like, why? There's all kinds of judges 
who are listed in, in Judges, and their parents aren't listed at all. But here's one guy, he is a mighty warrior, but it's, this, is, this is like, why? Like, that's like uh, Ahad, why, is he, why does it say he's left-handed? And then, of course, Samson, who, in his favor, was arrogant, a liar, and something that often gets overlooked. A com- he was living completely, he's a commandment breaker, Right? He doesn't honor his mother and father. It's like really, really clear. He, so that's one of, like obviously the other things are sinful, but you have one thing, they're all covenantally sinful, right? But there's one like explicit thing that he does where you can see where he doesn't, he refuses to honor his mother and father, which is like really kind of singling him out as someone who's living outside the covenant. And it's not the only thing, right? All the other things do too, don't get me wrong. But sometimes we, don't, sometimes we don't see it. But 1324, the Lord blesses him. And he kills a thousand people. Now, again, super impressive feat. Unbelievable feat. In fact, an impossible feat. Because on a purely human level, it is impossible to kill a thousand people with anything. I don't care what you have. Right? It's just not the thing. And then when he dies, then you have, of course, Delilah. Then when he dies, when Samson finally dies, when he finally does something, it's when he's a laughing stock and a court jester. But you know, and, and for a long time, and, and for years, that's just sort of how I taught it. Is that, you know, finally when Samson's just a shell of what he used to be, he does this faithful thing. But with all things in Judges, it's just, it's not that simple. This is how Samson asked for it. Remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my eyes. Now, I'm going to be super honest with you guys. For a long, long, long time, I taught this text, and I didn't pay any attention to that verse. The only thing I emphasized was sort of a big picture of Samson, in that at the very end, he does this faithful thing where he finally steps up and does something And I didn't pay any attention to what was right in front of me in the text. Now, again, I don't know Samson's mind. I'm not saying this is all the things that there is to say about him. I'm just saying this. In the Bible, the thing you hear from, the last thing almost that you hear from Samson, when he prays to God that he would be able to do this thing, it is to avenge the loss of his own two eyes. He doesn't say, for the sake of your holy name. He He doesn't show really. Maybe. Sometimes I've heard this, like the very fact that he's praying it's the first time and is, is like, is, 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 maybe that's, I'm not against that idea. It is. He is praying. We don't hear this before. Even that, so that, again, I'm, I'm just saying, all I'm trying to say is this. It's not black and white. Samson's motives are not black and white. He doesn't all of a sudden become like the saint of judges. He's at least sort of, gray figure, right? And this doesn't take away at all from him being Hebrews 11. I don't mean that at all. I'm just saying 
even like a character like Samson, and even the way he dies, it doesn't, it doesn't shine the spotlight on Samson. Just like the rest of the heroes of Judges, as heroic as some of them are. At the end, you can only conclude thus. They survive because God had promised Abraham, in you, through all, in you all the nations will be blessed. I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. And that he's keeping his word. In spite of the fact that you have this, all that you say will do. Now, here's, here's another thing. When we're reading these stories like this, we want to be really, really careful that we don't, so we're, like the way I'm talking about Israel, that I'm like standing over here, pretend that's a person. Let's pretend Jeremy's Israel. This is Jeremy down front, by the way. I don't want to be like, oh, those Israelites. You know, I can't believe they promised God that they would do this. Do they not know their own history? Don't they know what they're like? Do they seriously think that anybody's going to believe their pledge to do better? Ugh. But you see, if I'm engaged by the text itself, and not just looking at the text for information, but I'm engaged by the text itself, and, I'm, and I've caught on to these sort of like these reversals of things in the Scripture, all of a sudden what I do is I see Brian Vickers standing in the middle of the Israelites screaming, anything you say, I'll do it. Because now I'm reminded of how many times in my own life I have pledged to God, I'll never do that again. Or I've said to my wife, from now on, I promise. But then the next time I say to my wife, from now on, I promise, without even a flicker in my mind of, I've heard myself say that before. Unless it comes out as, now I know you've heard me say this before, but this time I'm different. And so what I do is now I see now, now what I see is I see myself, and I hear myself crying out to God or saying to God, pledging to God, resolving to God, res- I'm resolved to do this. And now what I see is it is not on the basis of my resolutions. It's not on the basis of my pledges. It is by the grace and power and promise of God alone, just like it was for them. Right? Because my life is a testimony of reversals. Of where if you knew, knew me, if you knew my heart, if you knew my path, if you knew anything. Where God has reversed it. But none of those things can point to me as much as I try to do that. So again, I hope, hopefully, hopefully this is an example. It's how we, we, can, we can talk about sort of these big themes, but not lose the fact that it's still Scripture speaking to us. Right? So we... We've got time for, for one more. We started late, so I'm going to take advantage of that, even though it wasn't your fault. Right, it's 2.15 is the first one. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to sort of start the story of David and Goliath, and then we'll, we'll come back to it. And then we're, don't worry, we're going to go to the New Testament too today. But here's a question I start, I teach hermeneutics. And uh, the very first day, I, uh, did you have me for hermeneutics? Are you, <laughs> Jim Hamilton, you should go back and take hermeneutics. You should. Now, Jim and I, really, really good friends. He would say worse, though, about my hermeneutics class, so I'm not really feeling that bad. I used to start off my hermeneutics class with a fake sermon. So I would roll in, 
and I would just, I wouldn't even say hello. I would read the David and Goliath story, and I would just launch into anything across my mind um, at the moment. It would be like, you know, to an Israelite mind, now already I've got everybody hooked, to the Hebrew mind, five meant there's five books of Moses. Just like in the New Testament, Matthew, where Jesus goes up on the mountain like a new Moses, Matthew is divided into five main discourse sections. And I look at people, like now I've got ten fingers up for some reason. I've got ten fingers up, I look at my students saying, is that not true? Is that not true? Is it not true? Or is it true? And then I would say, do you think God, do you think, do you think God just, make small talk like the way you do when you're having coffee, just sits around just talking, shooting the breeze, just says stuff that doesn't matter? Or do you think there's a reason why God says he has five rocks? Or do you think God wastes words? How are you going to answer that question? And by this time, I'm usually like up on a table or a chair, going completely bananas, right? And the students don't even know me. Well, some of them do. And then I'll just, all of a sudden, I'll go from there to like, I'll point at somebody and be like, the Goliaths in your life, that's sin. How do you go, do you, do you face it in the armor of men or in the full armor of God? And then I just launch into Paul. And then I get done and like, I can see the, now I'm, unfortunately, I'm probably, the, the, sometimes I have students amening and that's I always, that's, that's why I quit. And then students, I know. And then students taking notes. And then the students that I end up being pretty close to, the ones that, and they're, like, they're red and they're, like, they are really theologically, they don't, you don't even have to be really theologically finely tuned to hate what I'm doing. But the more theologically finely tuned, the angrier they're getting. Now, I can see it all over their faces. And at the end, I would say, if you never preach a sermon like this, this class will have not been without some purpose. And then they all sort of decompress. But then I'll go back to this original question. Why does David have five rocks? And I usually get, I usually get a whole host of answers, many of which are um, sort of, sort of some, I don't know, some attempts at sort of some sort of typology or some sort of symbolism. Or some students will say, well, it's, it's symbolic. And I'll say symbolic for what? Because symbols are useless unless they're symbolic for something. It's not just like symbolically five rocks, but there's nothing there a symbol for. Now, I mean, I don't say that like that to my students. But here's what we'll do. I'm going to ask you this question. We'll come back and we'll talk about it. Why five rocks? Because some, for some reason, it's pointed out specifically that he t- picks up five rocks. Now, not a bad answer is that's how many fit in his hand. That's an actually reasonable answer. And I think that's true. The reason there's five rocks is because that's how many he picked up. But I think there's more to say about it than that. And we'll talk about that after we have our uh, little bit of a break. And then what we'll do is when we come back, I know we got started a little bit late. Uh, what we, when we come back, I'll uh, pick this up. But then I also want to have some time where we can just sort of have an open kind of Q&A and talk if you want. Or feel free to grab me out here while we, we have 30 minutes. Is that right, Dan? Yeah. Okay.